Well, good morning. My name is Casey Cease. I have the joy of serving as a lead pastor of Preaching and Vision here at Christ Community Church. And uh, we're going to continue our time of worship by getting into the Word of God. If you have your Bible with you this morning, open with me to Mark chapter 12. There are also some Bibles laid around that you can feel free to grab and look up uh, with us and join with us. If you don't have a Bible that you enjoy to read on your own or maybe a translation that makes good sense for you, feel free to take this as a gift from us to you. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels in the New Testament. It's fast-paced, quick-moving. Uh, one of the uh, recurring frequent uh, words in the Gospel of Mark in the original language is euthus, which is immediately. And so you read a lot throughout the Gospel of Mark, and, and then immediately Jesus went on, and immediately this happened, and immediately, immediately. As we now focus in Mark chapter 12, it's slowing down, getting into more details of specific conversations that are extremely important for us to understand the grand narrative of ultimately what led Jesus to be put to death. I mentioned this last week, I'll say it again this week. I don't know about you, but early on in my faith, I would go to um, the Sunday before Easter, which was Palm Sunday, and they would be having like a pep rally for Jesus, and then I'd go back to church on Friday maybe for Good Friday, and they're killing Jesus, and then on the next Sunday, the Easter Sunday, they would be, Jesus would be raised from the dead. Now, what went from the pep rally to the crucifixion, and fortunately, the Bible spells that out for us. Jesus is basically making everybody upset, regardless of their theological conviction or their bent or whatever. Um, he, you can see in Mark chapter 11, as he comes in in the, um, in the triumphal entry, that he then goes into the temple and begins cleansing the temple by throwing over tables at this humongous swap meet type event that they're having in there. They're ripping people off by selling these sacrificial animals. He's going in there, throwing things over, um, and then people are asking and questioning him of his authority. He speaks to his authority and then begins to prophesy, basically, of what these religious leaders are wanting to do by killing him. And then he goes on and he talks about um, the parable of the tenants where he basically tells the religious leaders, hey, there's nothing new here. You people have been killing God's messengers since he began sending them. So then they question him. They try to trip him up against the government on taxes. And so he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. And so finally they challenge the Sadducees, the, the, the religious wealthy influencers in the temple are trying to then trip him up about the resurrection. The only catch is the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection at all. And so they come questioning him about the resurrection, trying to trap him. And he confronts them, telling them that they don't understand the scriptures and they don't know the power of God and so we pick up today observing a man, a scribe, who is coming in. And the scribes are well-educated, highly esteemed religious people who are able to read. They're able to write. They often understand the law and the, the prophecies better than most people. And so you see the scribe come up to Jesus as he's been listening to what Jesus has been saying. And really, this posture is less confrontation and more curiosity, which is interesting. Because up until this point, the interactions that Jesus has been having has been more confrontational, but this is coming more with the posture of curiosity. So the main thing I want us to take away today, if nothing else, is this, that the proactive love of God empowers us to love him supremely and others selflessly. We're going to be talking about the great commandment, and I know I've beat that drum a lot, but quite honestly, if this is all, um, if we start really owning this, loving God, loving our neighbors selflessly, loving other people, if we start really leaning into this and living this, we can change our culture, we can change our community, we can change our nation, we can change our world. And so 
I'm happy to, as much as this comes up in scripture, to bring us there and as your pastor to remind you of this as well because the proactive love of God, the, 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 the God of love who comes after his people empowers us to love him supremely and others selflessly. So pick up with me in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love your Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Oftentimes when I'm speaking with people who are not yet followers of Christ, they ask questions uh, regarding, you know, well, what does it mean to follow God? What does it mean to love Jesus? And, and a lot of times I begin hearing either directly a defense of their goodness or indirectly an argument for their goodness, that they are essentially good people, that even if God sent his son Jesus to live, die, and rise again, he did so for the people that were overtly bad. And so I typically begin by asking this question. Let me just ask you this. Do you love God consistently with all that you are? Is that the supreme love of your life? Do you love him more than anything or anyone else at all times? Have you always and will you always? I've yet to meet a person who says, yeah, I do that. Right, because then they're guilty of sin of lying, right? I mean, it's, we don't love that way. We don't love God that way. None of us do. We don't love God with all that we are. That, that is not the heartbeat of our, of our lives most of the time. Now, I, hear me. I know many of you are followers of Jesus. You love God and you're striving and realigning your life daily to love God. But the reality is when Jesus comes from the Shema, which is the basic confession of Judaism, and it's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. Jesus is referring back to this basic confession of Judaism. He's saying this is the premier. Loving God is the greatest command. And if you love God, then consequentially, you will love your neighbor. In Leviticus 19, verse 18 the word of God says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And I think when we hear you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and don't take it within context of where it was originally found in Leviticus 19, we miss the gravity that there's a, it's a contrast against vengeance. Instead of looking for vengeance, you love your neighbor so instead of seeking your opinion of righteousness, you love your neighbor. Jesus is stating that if you obey the commandment to love God, you will then begin loving what God loves. And quite honestly, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's easier to love God than to love people. Many times. Now, some people, they, they elevate relationships higher than they elevate God, but people can be frustrating, amen? How many of you show of hands are married or been in a long-term relationship of any kind? Is it always easy? No, everybody's hands drops immediately. Like, no, it's not. Pray for us, right? 
it's not all, I mean, this idea of, of loving God and loving our neighbor as we love God because of the way God loved us, that, that is, I, I don't know about you, it's easy as a Christian, if you've been in the faith at all for a while, to hear love God, love people, yeah, I know, I get it. Kind of blow it off. But if you think about, well, what does love look like? What does love really mean? We have to understand it goes beyond just the emotion of feeling in love. The love that God is requiring from us is a active love, a proactive love, where Paul talks about love being patient and kind, doesn't envy or boast, is not selfish or rude, does not rejoice in evil, but delights in what is true. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. That type of love is a love by which we're called to love God. And I think many of us, we, we believe that alignment with God means that we are you know, speaking about God, but our hearts are far from him. That, that's called Phariseeism. We say the God things, we behave the God way, but our hearts are not warm towards God. What captures your imagination? What, what do you long for? What do you pursue? And so Jesus is teaching that, hey, this, this idea of love isn't just this feeling of affection for God. God does engage our affection. But if our faithfulness is contingent, I mean, based on or depending on our feeling only, we won't be faithful very long. And so the way that we begin obeying this love of loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbors that we love ourselves is understanding the proactive love of our Father. When I was in my early 20s and then getting into seminary, um, I, you know, early on I was just like, I was dead in my sin, I'm alive now in Christ, awesome, you know? And then I would battle with things like, is the Bible really true and is Jesus the only way to God and, and wrestle with those truths and talk to people and ask questions. But as I got more fluent in some of those basic things, I started going to like 2.0 Christianity. You know what I'm talking about, like, you know, collegiate level, grad school level, right? And we start fighting about Calvinism and Arminianism, Molinism, modalism, preterism, partial preterism, premillennialism, millennialism, postmillennial, post-trib, pre-mill, pre-trib, post. Amen. Which translation's better? Which is right? Which Greek method of memorization is better? Do you do the mounts or do you do the traditional? I started digging into all these things, and, and as I was navigating all those things, man, I was having a blast, but many times my heart was far from God. I was more concerned about being right than being obedient and loving God. I wanted to figure God out, not experience God's love. I wanted to know what God knows rather than being content with knowing what God intends for me to know from his word. And so when this started happening, and, and I don't want my academic friends thinking I'm disqualifying or downplaying academia or knowing God, but understand this, as we press into the deeper truths of God, if it is not cultivating for us a deeper root system into the ground of our faith that draws from it nourishment and sustenance for our faith, then it's all for naught. Because quite honestly, I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in Calvinism or egalitarianism or whatever that we're missing on, am I loving God? Am I pressing into what it means that God loves me? What is that doing for me? How does that help me to respond and interact on a day-to-day -day basis? How does that engage me in such a way that I'm more humbled by the deeper things of God rather than arrogant because I know them? 
I mean, we'd sit in coffee shops. I mean, I would drive from down near Sugarland all the way up to Dietrich's, which is gone now. It's not there any longer. Westheimer and Dunlavy, rest in peace. And I would drive like 35 minutes just to go argue and agree with my friends about theology. I was like six degrees. Are you familiar with like the six degrees to Kevin Bacon? Like you can say Kevin Bacon and within six degrees you can find people that are connected somehow to Kevin Bacon. That was me and Calvinism for like five years. Hey, what's the weather like today? Providentially, it's rainy because God's sovereign. Oh, you chose God? Good for God. I was that guy. I wasn't loving my neighbor. I was making fun of people I disagreed with. I was like, well, that's just because they're an idiot. They're choosing to be idiots. I wasn't loving God because I wasn't loving what God loved, which is his creation. I was loving myself and congratulating myself for how well I was loving God. And I was figuring him out. If the knowledge of God doesn't compel us towards the love of the unlovable, then I would argue we're not really knowing God. So God's pursuing love enables us to love him. And let me prove that. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You've heard me teach on this before. Love is not God. God is love. A lot of times we elevate love to being God, and therefore love rules even God. No, God is love. Therefore God, because he is love, defines love. He sets love. He empowers it. He gives it. He fulfills it. He sustains it. God is love. It's not that we, he became lovely. He wasn't lovely, but we then chose to make him lovely. It's that God has always been love. Since he is love, God gets to define what it is and what it means. It's not contingent on our feelings. It's based upon his character and his nature. And so his pursuing love enables us to love him. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love in this. So here, here's the proof in the pudding. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's an important verse. Want to talk about obeying the great commandment? God's love was made manifest among us, so in time and space, the love of God came. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So we see in this passage that God's love is historical. I wanna make that point very clear, that there's proactivity in history of evidences of God's love. It's not just ethereal, it's not just a feeling, it's not just a motif, it's not just a phase. Throughout time, from the advent of creation, God's love has been evident and proactive. His love has been engaging. His love has been sacrificial. 
The second thing we see in this passage is that God's love is his choice. It's not something we do to then merit or earn God's love. God chooses to love even the most unlovable. Many of us live our lives that we're trying to earn to keep God's love. Work to earn to keep, earn or keep God's love. We're working for it. We're trying to either earn it or keep it. Even before you even cared about that, he was proactively pursuing you because of his love. On your worst day, in your darkest moment, in the midst of your failures, God was choosing to love. And his love isn't just something that we want to talk about. It's something that he has proven. He says, in this it is love, verse 10, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. See, I think many people, I know many people believe that God doesn't love us until we ask him to love us. That's not true. God loves us in spite of our desire for him to love us or not. So God comes after us. He chooses to love us. But he, it's not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, to be the penalty for the payment of the substitute in place of our sin. He gave his only son so that you and I might be adopted formerly as enemies, but adopted in as sons and daughters by his proactive choosing. And so the next thing we see about God's love is that it is proactive. God's love is proactive. It's pursuing. I know many of you are struggling with many different things. I know the majority of your stories here. None of us is perfect. Let me just put that on the table for us all. We all struggle with external things. We struggle with internal things. Either we're doing really well at things and so we struggle with pride or things are going really poorly and we still struggle with pride, just a different direction. This, this sermon isn't meant to elicit from you a try harder to love God more. I'm not gonna frustrate you that way. I want you to see that the love of God is enough and he invites us to enjoy him in it and through it by responding to him. Because God's love is proactive and God's love is consequential. There's something that happens as a result of God's love, namely the giving of his own son as a perfect sacrifice so that you and I might be adopted and forgiven and acceptable to God. And so I don't want you to think, man, I've got to try harder to love God. I want you to understand God's love for you because I'm convinced the more we understand this tangible, consequential, proactive, meaningful, historical love of God, then our insecurities and our doubts and our fears and our anger and our unbelief will begin to be blown away and life will be blown into us as God has done from the advent of time and promises to do by the giving of his Holy Spirit. So although I'm making these points about God's love towards us, I hope that God is what is beginning to capture your attention, not on your inability. When Jesus gives the command to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves, it should bring about not a, well, I'm doing pretty well, but a, oh, wow. Because if we're honest, that bar is set very high. 
Because in Luke chapter 10, Jesus talks about, well, who is my neighbor? And he gives this example of this good Samaritan who comes and cares for a man that the religious leaders just walked on by. And he basically blew this concept of different race and different religion and saying that all humanity is your neighbor. The men that were beating and spitting upon Jesus as he was being prepared for crucifixion, Jesus prayed for them as they were his neighbor. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So even in that moment of betrayal and of abuse, he was praying for God's mercy because he understood the consequential love of God, and in turn, he understood the gravity and consequence of the wrath of God. That the wrath of God is so severe and ongoing and eternal that you would not wish that on your even worst enemy. But in view of God's wrath, we then see the beauty of his grace, the depth of his love, the consequence of it, so that we then respond by asking God to help us love as he loves. And we understand that, that type of allegiance. We live in a state where, especially one of the universities here, and I don't want to say its name because you're going to start worshiping in your whoop language, but there's this, there's this loyalty and affinity and affection and buy-in, and we have several one percenters here, whatever you call yourselves, who are not part of the cult, and I'm kidding. Two percenters, three percenters, what's it called? Two? It's probably a meaning behind that as well. Um, but there's this whole infatuation, and, and you want to see what, what affinity and affectionate worship looks like? Go to a game. That's worship. And I'm not mad at you. I know several of you have been to that university. You whoop your heads off and wave towels and kiss at touchdowns and sing songs and sway with strangers and do all sorts of things. I'm not using that to pick on anybody. I'm just saying that's, that's an example of a sold-out affection. That we don't hold on to our rights as much because we, we realize that we violated God's and that God chose to violate his own rights to give his own son so that he could have us. And so when he calls us to love him with all that he is, the reason is it's for our good because he is worth it. And the reason he calls us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves is because he's redeeming that which is inherently in us. We do love ourselves. We desire to be happy. We desire to be free. We desire to be liberated. We desire to be secure and cared for. And he's redeeming those things, showing us that, hey, some of that isn't inherently wrong because God created us with that desire. But what happens is sin makes us believe that we find those needs being met in people and things other than God himself first. And so when we begin to understand God's pursuing love that enables us to love him, it leads us to the second point that loving God empowers us to love those who he loves selflessly. Have you ever found yourself, just, and we're not gonna be honest because it's pretty rotten, but have you ever found yourself like judging for God who he should love? Some of you are laughing because you know like, yes, I've done that. I've done that. Like God, seriously, that person, no way. Absolutely no way. But the reality is, is that's his business, and God loves his creation. He loves his creation. And there's nothing that's been created that has not been created by our Father in heaven. There may be those who are walking in gross disobedience to the Father, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't have love or affection for them. 
See, loving God, as we begin to love him more, we start caring about what he cares about. As Stephanie and I have been together nearly 17 years married, been together almost 22 years total, I start noticing things now that I would never notice before. I started praying several years ago. Guys write this down as like, maybe this is a secret. It's one of them. One, start praying. That helps. But I start praying, God, help me to see things as she sees them. Help me to live in an understanding way that wants to come alongside her rather than oppose her. And so I can realize that one of the ways I love my wife during the week, especially if I have to leave for a meeting, is I proactively get up and I start cleaning that kitchen after dinner because one of her love languages is acts of service. And so I start seeing things that matter to her, and so therefore, because they matter to her, they matter to me. So when I'm watching footage of people not leaving behind their flooding house because of their pet, I don't have like human level affection for pets. I don't. I believe they're a creation gift, gifted to us as a gift to remind us of God's creativity and God's love, but I do not believe that they are created on the same standard as humans. Now, some of you might get up and leave like, not my fluffy, and, and leave, but. And my first thing is, is when people are being rescued, like, leave the cat, especially the cat. <laughs> so you're like, hey, man, I was going to leave, but I don't like cats. Write a check. All right. I'm watching them, and people won't leave their homes being flooded because of Fluffy. And my human nature is like, you're a fool. There are too many cats on the planet anyways. But loving them as I love myself, saying in that moment of trauma where everything's being lost, the one item of comfort or connection or life is for whatever miraculous reason a cat and so I begin caring about what other people care about. See, loving God is the antidote to the crippling selfishness that many of us live under. It liberates us then from the need to people please, meaning that we wanna please people so that they like us and think better of us, but because we are fully liked and loved by God because he chooses to, we're then able to like people even when they don't like us back. And I'm still on that journey, but Church, if, if nothing else, if you leave C3 after a few years, get relocated because of work, whatever, and you leave and you're saying, man, I love God more and I love people more, I think we're winning. Because there is more to God to know and to love. And loving God, it empowers us to love those who he loves selflessly. Here's a grid of whether you're becoming a Pharisee or not. If you're learning more facts about God and understanding more about God and become more conversant about the things of God and you love people less, you're farther from God than you were before you knew anything. If your increasing love of God doesn't bring about compassion and joy and patience and hope and the alleviation of the fact that guess what? You're not God and neither am I, thank God. I can't save anybody. I've told you before, back when I used to travel and do evangelism, old boys would be like, Casey, how many people you save? I said, zero. They thought I was a fruitless, a fruitless minister. I don't save people. God does. We're the midwife. We're the mouthpiece. We're the obedient donkey that opens our mouth and says, trust Christ. He's your only hope. So Jesus goes on in, in verse 32, and the scribe said to him, 
you're right, teacher. You, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. So, so far the scribe is agreeing with Jesus' theology. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. To love God with your strength, with your life, and with your mind. And so there is a huge invitation to press into the infinite God and to know more about him and to ask hard theological questions. But I would say until you sit and rest, being convinced that for whatever reason God in his kindness chose to love you, if you're not yet convinced of the love of God for you and the love of God for others, then perhaps you need to dwell there a little bit longer before you press into deeper theological truths that are distracting you from the nature and person of God himself. I think so often in church culture we say, Pray this prayer, check this box, take a bath, give money, serve 18 different ways, study your Bible, do all these things, but we miss the why. The why is that we might know God. When we serve and do road crew, we sacrifice in such a way that we are in lineage with the people that used to travel on the original road crew back in the Old Testament. When the pillar of smoke or the pillar of fire moved from one place to the next, they'd have to load up the whole tabernacle and move until God said, stop. Road crew here has it super easy compared to that. We have more wheels, we have you know, more stuff, we have air conditioning. Like, we have it so much more simple than the Old Testament guys that would you know, have to move whenever God's pillar left. But as we serve, as we rock a baby who can't thank us, as we change a diaper, as we correct a child, as we share Jesus, as we forgive, we're walking alongside of Jesus, experiencing the love of God and extending the love of God. And the scribe says, you're right. Love God with all your mind. So as you study, study so that you can know God more and love him more. Not so that you become smarter than God, but that you get to know the internal God. And giving our education and our learning and our study to the purpose of knowing God more. Loving God and loving your neighbor is far greater than any burnt sacrifice or offering. We give because we've been so generously given to. We don't give to pay God off or to quell our conscience. We give because we understand 100% is his. We don't serve because, oh my gosh, if no one does it, then it'll not happen. We serve because God has first served us. It's one of the saddest things I hear when I talk to my friends who are pastors of church plants that be, get their own facility, and they say, one of the things that we lose getting our own facility is that people don't step up and serve near as much because there isn't a continuous need as there is in a portable church. And that doesn't mean we'll never get our own facility. But what it does mean is that we will always be looking for ways for you to sacrificially serve Because that's part of extending in our faith and following after Christ. If following Jesus is easy, then I want to ask you, what Jesus are you following? And when Jesus, verse 34, saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him 
any more questions. The scribe came to him and said, you're right, if you love God, the one true God with all that you are, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you're right. And, and it goes on and says that Jesus told him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He didn't say you're in. Because without hope in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the great commandment, we have no hope. And that's the final point of this morning's sermon is Jesus is the fulfillment of the great commandment. I don't want you leaving trying harder. I want you leaving believing and owning that you have been liberated. That the fulfillment of the great commandment has been found in completeness in the person of Jesus. That if you are in Christ, as you're dwelling in Christ, as you're living your life through Christ, the great commandment is fulfilled and you're now able and empowered to begin loving that way. It's no longer left up to you to do good things for God and do nice things for God to earn something from God, but because God has given his all to us, we're then now liberated to live our lives as a thank you. That when we go to the word of God, we don't just go because we're supposed to. We go to the word of God so that we can hear from God himself, that we can know him, so that when we go to open our mouth to make him known, we have something significant, meaningful, and true to say. That when we reflect upon God's proactive, historical, consequential love for us in and through the life, the death, the resurrection, and the future return of his son Jesus, we then have a hope that we can hold on to even when life seems and feels hopeless. There are days you're not going to feel like that God is true or that God loves you. Look to the empty grave. Remember the cross. Remember the great sacrifice that God proactively put in place so that he would be both just and justifier, that he would be right in pursuing you, that he would be right in forgiving you and redeeming you and adopting you as sons and daughters. Look to the cross and look to the empty grave because the promise has been made, the promise has been kept. The love of God is tangible, it is accessible, it is consequential, it is real, and it is proven. It's through that love of God that has been given through his son that as we hope in his son and we commit ourselves to studying the word and the deeper truths of God's character and nature that it brings about a gratitude and a desire for more people to know him. Yes, there is an element of the Great Commission that is an issue of obedience that because we have been commissioned and sent to make disciples we are making disciples of something or someone. Each of us is. As I've said to you before, we are all preaching a gospel of some kind. What good news is your life preaching? Because since we have been accepted and adopted through Christ, we're now able to live in fulfillment of the gospel. And so when this man says to Jesus, yes, this is true, and Jesus says you're not far away, what then shall we do? What could help this man the reality is this man didn't yet know that Jesus himself was a fulfillment of these truths. And so for us, the way we respond to these truths is that we don't look into the mirror or try harder. We look to Jesus. We look at Jesus. We hope in Jesus. And we follow Jesus. The promise made and promise kept has been accomplished in and through Jesus. God's proactive love, his consequential love has been caring for us, 
since the foundations of the earth and realize for us as we place our hope and trust in Christ so that we can hope in and trust in the fact that the proactive love of God empowers us to love him supremely and others selflessly. One of the things that I know I long for the most is a sense of freedom. And the sense of freedom isn't meaning there's no rules or laws or anarchy. The freedom I'm speaking of is that desire that my temptations don't define me. My sin doesn't define me. My sexuality doesn't define me. My finances don't define me. My job doesn't define me. My God defines me. My Savior defines me. His love has been proven in time and space. And in that definition, I can then come clean with my depression and anxiety and my fears and my doubts and my issues with whatever we're struggling with. We can come openly and freely because God has accomplished victory over those things as well. And so we don't look to ourselves to try harder, but we look to Christ because the proactive love of God, that is what empowers us to love him supremely above all things and others selflessly. Let's pray.